It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This is CGP Spender, and you're listening to X Files Truth. The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. The X-Files have been closed. All files have been locked away in the Pentagon vaults. I've secretly been given access to these files. This is X-Files Truth. Look at you, you're shaking. One at a time, boys. Now, what's going on? Rohiggy's close. Don't use my name! What the hell's wrong with you? Now I'll have to kill you. Langley and I performed He's three everywhere, sweeps everywhere. the CPM-700. They did not detect a and single hot mic or infinity bug. The acoustic correlator is reading only passive sounds. I've been here 20 minutes and I still don't know what the hell is wrong. No one would kill you, Frohiggy. You're just a little puppy dog. I don't utter another syllable until a CSM-25 countermeasure filter is activated. No electronic surveillance known can cut through the CSM-25. Okay, okay. Now tell us what you're so close to. Not a what, a who. If you find the right starting point and follow it, not even secrets of the darkest of men are safe. Cancer man? you find? Possibly everything. Maybe his background, who he is, and who he wants to be. For nothing can seem foul to those that win. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man. X-File number classified. The plot. The smoking man armed with a sniper rifle and surveillance equipment, spies on a meeting between Fox Mulder, Dana Scully, and the lone gunman. Frohickey claims to have discovered information about the smoking man's mysterious past, stating that his father was an executed communist spy and that his mother died of lung cancer, causing him to be raised in various Midwest orphanages. The narrative changes to 1962, The smoking man is an army captain stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. He talks to a friend and fellow soldier, Bill Mulder, who shows him a photo of his infant son, Fox. The smoking man is summoned to attend a meeting with a general and several strange men in suits. They assign him to 
assassinate President John F. Kennedy. In 1963, posing as Mr. Hunt, the smoking man shoots Kennedy and frames Lee Harvey Oswald. Afterward, he smokes his first cigarette from a pack previously given to him by Oswald. Five years later, the smoking man writes a novel entitled Take a Chance, a Jack Colquitt adventure, using the pen name Raoul Bloodworth. After hearing Martin Luther King Jr. give a speech criticizing Americans' attitudes towards the distribution of wealth at home and social revolutions abroad, the smoking man meets with a group of men, including J. Edgar Hoover. The smoking man convinces the group to have King assassinated and volunteers to perform the task. Shortly thereafter, a publishing company rejects his novel. In 1991, the smoking man meets with subordinates discussing his orchestration of the Anita Hill controversy and the Rodney King trial. He orders that the Buffalo Bills never win a Super Bowl. He further reveals that drugging of a Soviet goalkeeper to ensure the outcome of the Miracle on Ice Olympic victory by the United States. All right, gentlemen, let's make this short and sweet so we can all go home for Christmas. Domestic unrest operations? Yeah, the Anita Hill thing has lost steam since October. Well, let it go. We played it right. Unfounded allegations will be flying around in no time. L.A. The Rodney King trial's been moved to Simi Valley, just as you instructed. Call back. Internationally, Bosnia-Herzegovina is set for a February vote on independence from Yugoslavia. America couldn't care less. I'm working on next month's Oscar nominations. Any preference? I couldn't care less. What I don't want to see is the Bills winning the Super Bowl. As long as I'm alive, that doesn't happen. Could be tough, sir. Buffalo wants it bad. So did the Soviets in 80. What, are you saying you rigged the Olympic hockey game? What's the matter? Don't you believe in miracles? The boss gave the Russian goaltender a little pre-game good luck pat on the back. Unseen Nova King needle on a bogus wedding ring. Goalie's a little slow on the stick side. 4-3, home team. Payback's a bitch, Ivan. Well, gentlemen, if that'll be all... One thing internally, sir. That spooky kid who talked his way into opening the X-Files feels like trouble. He's mine to keep an eye on. Corporate office just resigned. There's no more enemies. One of the smoking man's subordinates invites him for a family dinner. Although flattered, the smoking man declines the invitation and states that he's scheduled to visit his family. He's next seen walking past Fox Mulder's office. Later, while at home, the smoking man receives an urgent phone call from Deep Throat, who meets him near the site of a UFO wreck. An alien from the UFO is alive. Deep Throat and the smoking man reminisce about the multiple times they changed the course of history. Any historic events have only the two of us witnessed together. How often did we make or change history? And our names can never grace any pages of record. 
No monument will ever bear our image. And yet once again, tonight, the course of human history will be set by two unknown men standing in the shadows. A living EBE could advance Bill Mulder's project by decades. Security Council Resolution 1013 states any country capturing such an entity is responsible for its immediate extermination. I'm the liar. You're the killer. Your lies have killed more men in a day than I have in a lifetime. I've never killed anybody. Maybe I'm not the liar. I have a chance to go an entire lifetime without killing anybody or anything. With all of our work in the past 30 years, all of our victories, if the world were to see this, it would destroy all we've gained in a few hours. Tonight, we have a new enemy. Go ahead. Make history. They flip a coin over who is tasked to kill the alien survivor. Deep Throat loses and then reluctantly shoots the alien. A few months later, in March 1992, the smoking man attends the meeting where Scully is assigned to the X-Files and eavesdrops on the agency's first meeting. In 1996, he receives a letter telling him that his novel will be serialized in the magazine Roman Aklef. He types up a resignation letter to the syndicate and excitedly finds the magazine at a newsstand. However, he finds that the ending has been changed. Bitter, the smoking man sits on a bench with a homeless man giving a monologue on how life is like a box of chocolates. Life is like a box of chocolates. Cheap, thoughtless, perfunctory gift that nobody ever asks for. Unreturnable because all you get back is another box of chocolates. So you're stuck with this undefinable whipped mint crap that you mindlessly wolf down and there's nothing else left to eat. Sure, once in a while there's a peanut butter cup. English toffee, but they're gone too fast and taste is fleeting. They end up with nothing but broken bits filled with hardened jelly and teeth shattering nuts. If you're desperate enough to eat those, all you've got left is a is an empty box filled with useless brown paper wrappers. He tears up the resignation letter and leaves the magazine on the bench. Back in the present, Frohickey tells Mulder and Scully that what he's told them is based on a story he found in a magazine that he subscribes to. He leaves to verify the story. As he leaves, the smoking man has a clear shot. However, he decides not to kill him and quotes the last line from his unpublished novel, I can kill you whenever I please, but not today. So far, this is based only on a story I read in one of my weekly subscriptions that rang a few bells. 
I'm going out to check on a private hacker source who's been working on tracking a few leads that can produce definitive proof. And then we'll have a mail. I can kill you whenever I please. Now for my field report for Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man. This is an unbelievable episode. It's excellent. We don't even get Mulder in this one. Um, it may be the only episode that I can think of that's like a 9 or a 10 that doesn't even have Mulder in the episode. I mean, we, we get to hear his voice, I guess. We hear a little bit of Scully, too, but they're not really actors in the movie. It's really just about CSM and him remembering things and you know us getting the story behind all these events in history that he actually had a part in or you know supposedly had a part in but it's really excellent how they work it all in how he's actually the assassin of JFK and it kind of fits with where he's positioned when he shoots him uh, with you know the video footage that we've seen and the miracle by the Americans winning the uh, gold medal that wasn't the gold medal game but that's the that was the game that put them in the gold medal game, and that was the the game where they were. That was the biggest miracle. The next game was the Finland gold medal game, which was pretty miraculous too. Finland was great. There's so many other events that he's tied into, and they do such a great job of getting him tied into things like that, and then killing off a extraterrestrial biological entity, and uh, you know anything important that ever happened. CSM is involved in, in uh, also Deep Throat too, so it was really good seeing him again too. But we get to see, you know, Bill Mulder, Fox's father, for just a little bit. We don't really know it's him at the beginning until he says, you know, see you later, Bill, or whatever, in um, or Mulder. So that gets tied in. A lot of cool things too, like when he lights a cigarette, you get to see the lighter and it says, trust no one on the cigarette lighter. So that was really excellent when I saw that and the. Uh, also, the surveillance or the counter-surveillance equipment that the lone gunman had was called the CSM-25, I think. And uh, so that was really cool. It just had the CSM in it. This was just an unbelievable episode. We got to see, you know, so many events in history. Also, Martin Luther King, how he assassinated him. Just all these great conspiracies. And it's totally believable how a guy like that could have been part of all that, you know? I mean, it would be a stretch in real life, but it's, you know, it's almost believable. So that's what makes it so interesting. And we get to learn a lot about CSM's life, a little bit about his parents and his um, background, where they came from, where he came from. You get to hear him talking and kind of thinking out loud and everything. And how he got the uh, Rodney King trials moved just everything I'm just kind of thinking out loud about all the things that they covered but I guess that's enough about that let me get to some ratings and everything um, I would probably give it a 10 on a scale of uh, 1 to 10 it's an excellent episode I could just keep watching this over and over I just I noticed you know new things even on the rewatch today when I rewatched it it was just unbelievable so uh, he get that this one gets a 10 compared to all X-Files episodes it's still right there you know probably a 10 I can't think of anything wrong with it it's just really well done for the sequelizer, this would have a high potential for a sequel just because, you know, you can picture CSM sitting up in that warehouse, you know, spying on the lone gunman. He basically can spy on just about anybody. He's got everybody under surveillance. 
So this is an ongoing thing. He's It's part of his life, how he keeps an eye on Fox Mulder and on the Lone Gunman and just about everything in the world. <laughs> you know, Saddam Hussein was calling him in one of those meetings, so it's uh, unbelievable. High potential for a sequel. Definitely a 10 compared to everything on television. It's a 10. I didn't even realize how good I liked it. I remember it was a great episode, and I didn't even realize you know, how great it was until I rewatched it. So I think I'll go watch it again. So I'll let you guys listen to Agent Angela now while I go do that. So let's head down to the chem lab and see what Agent Angela has for the chemistry <laughs> between Mulder and Scully, who didn't even appear in the episode, for uh, musings of a cigarette smoking man. I haven't listened to her file yet, so she's got to have to be creative with this one. Let's go check that out. agents. Mulder and Scully make almost nary an appearance in Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, except for brief voices overheard on the CSM's audio equipment at the beginning. Scully later shows up in a brief flashback to the famous spooky Mulder scene in the pilot episode, only this time we get to see it more from the Smoking Man's point of view. So, I possibly haven't missed Mulder and Scully more, at least not in recent memory, than when I was trying to come up with what to talk about for this episode. I got a couple of ideas from a couple of you listeners, because I put the question out there on Facebook. So thank you to those who responded, I really do appreciate that. One thing I did want to touch on comes from a Facebook exchange with Cassie Bavila, who has commented on our page before. It was in reference to one of the many articles on the X-Files 6 episode revival that will air in January of 2016. She writes that it better cater to all types of fans of the X-Files, not just the Mulder and Scully shippers. Believe it or not, I understand how you feel. I know what it feels like to be a no-romo in a fandom. Obviously not this one. Another one for me. I won't actually say which one because that isn't the time or the place for that. Anyway, a fandom that's overrun with shippers. There is something to be said for putting the shoe on the other foot, and I've definitely learned that as I've gotten a little bit older. I do hope that the X-Files episodes in January do strike a good balance all the way around. For all types of different fans of the show. Just like the X-Files Dictionary also commented on the same thread on Facebook. Don't forget, we are everywhere. Anyway, I wanted to put it out there that even though I do a Mulder and Scully shipper segment, I don't ever want that to discourage any of you who are no-romos from interacting with us. Even if I personally may not agree, I'm still willing to listen. Like I said, I sit on both sides of the shipper no-romo fence. It all just depends on which fandom. That wraps it up for me for this time around. I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to the other agents as we get into musings of a cigarette-smoking man. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. You're now, but I'm 
counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with counterintelligence. With X 4.7, musings of a cigarette smoking man. Original air date November 17, 1996. Written by Glenn Morgan. Directed by James Wong. I can kill you whenever I please. 1962. The smoking man is an army captain stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. He talks to a friend and fellow soldier, Bill Mulder, who shows him a photo of his infant son, Fox. The smoking man is summoned to attend a meeting with a general and several strange men in suits. They assign him to assassinate President John F. Kennedy. In 1963, posing as a Mr. Hunt, the smoking man shoots Kennedy and frames Lee Harvey Oswald. Afterwards, he smokes his first cigarette from a pack previously given to him by Oswald. Additionally, the smoking man's ambition to be a novelist was based on E. Howard Hunt. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, was assassinated at 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on Friday, November 22, 1963 in Dealey Plaza, Dallas, Texas. Kennedy was fatally shot by a sniper while traveling with his wife Jackie, Texas Governor John Connolly, and Connolly's wife Nellie in a presidential motorcade. A 10-month investigation from November of 63 to September of 64 by the Warren Commission concluded that Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone, and that Jack Ruby also acted alone when he killed Oswald before he could stand trial. Kennedy's death marked the fourth successful assassination of an American president and elevated Lyndon B. Johnson to the nation's highest office. In contrast to the conclusions of the Warren Commission, the United States House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded in 1979 that Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. The HSCA agreed with the Warren Commission in that Kennedy and Connolly's injuries were caused by Oswald's three rifle shots, but they also determined the existence of additional gunshots based on analysis of an audio recording and therefore, quote, a high probability that two gunmen fired at the president, unquote. The committee was not able to identify any individuals or groups involved with the conspiracy. In addition, the HSCA found that the original federal investigations were seriously flawed in respects to information sharing and the possibility of conspiracy. As recommended by the HSCA, the acoustic evidence indicating conspiracy was subsequently re-examined and rejected. In light of investigative reports determining that reliable acoustic data do not support a conclusion that there was a second gunman, the Justice Department has concluded active investigations stating that no persuasive evidence can be identified to support the theory of a conspiracy in the assassination of President Kennedy. However, Kennedy's assassination is still the subject of widespread debate and has spawned numerous conspiracy theories and alternative scenarios. A polling in 2013 showed that 60% of Americans believe that a group of conspirators was responsible for the assassination. E. Everett Howard Hunt Jr., born October 9, 1918, dying January 23, 2007, was an American intelligence officer and writer. From 1949 to 1970, Hunt served as CIA officer. Along with G. Gordon Liddy and others, Hunt was one of the Nixon White House plumbers, a secret team of operatives charged with fixing leaks, real or perceived causes of confidential administration information being leaked to outside parties. Hunt and Liddy engineered the Watergate burglaries and other undercover operations for the Nixon administration. 
In the ensuing Watergate scandal, Hunt was convicted of burglary, conspiracy, and wiretapping, eventually serving 33 months in prison. Warner Brothers had just bought rights to Hunt's novel, Bimini Run, when he joined the CIA in October of 1949 as a political action specialist in what came to be called their Special Activities Divisions. The CIA was the successor organization of the OSS. Hunt became section chief in Mexico City in 1950 and supervised William F. Buckley Jr., who worked for the CIA in Mexico during the period of 51 to 52, and Buckley and Hunt remained lifelong friends. In Mexico, Hunt helped devise Operation PBS Success, the successful covert plan to overthrow Jacobo Arbenz, the elected president of Guatemala. Following assignments in Japan and as station chief in Uruguay, Hunt was given the assignment of forging Cuban exile leaders in the United States into a broadly representative government in exile that would, after the Bay of Pigs invasion, form a provisional government to take over Cuba. The failure of the invasion damaged his career. After the Bay of Pigs, Hunt became a personal assistant to Alan Dulles. Tad Zulick states that Hunt was asked to assist Dulles in writing a book, The Craft of Intelligence, that Dulles wrote following his involuntary retirement as CIA head in 1961. The book was published in 1963. Hunt told the Senate Watergate Committee in 1973 that he had served as the first chief of covert action for the CIA's Domestic Operations Division told the New York Times in 1974 that he spent about four years working for the division, beginning shortly after it was set up by the Kennedy administration in 1962 over the strenuous opposition of Richard Helms and Thomas H. Karamissons. He said the division was assembly, assembled shortly after the Bay of Pigs operation and that many men connected with that failure were shunted into the new domestic unit. Hunt was undeniably bitter about what he perceived as President John F. Kennedy's lack of commitment in overturning the Fidel Castro regime. In his semi-fictional autobiography, Give Us This Day, he wrote, The Kennedy administration yielded Castro all the excuse he needed to gain a tighter grip on the island of Jose Marti, then moved shamefacedly into the shadows and hoped the Cuban issue would simply melt away. Disillusioned, he retired from the CIA on May 1, 1970. Hunt supported the Warren Commission's conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in JFK's assassination. The Dallas Morning News, Dallas Times-Herald, and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram photographed three transients under police escort near the Texas School Book Depository shortly after the assassination of Kennedy. The men later became known as the Three Tramps. According to Vincent Bugliosi, allegation that these men were involved in a conspiracy originated from theorist Richard E. Sprague, who compiled the photographs in 66 and 67, and subsequently turned them over to Jim Garrison during his investigation of Clay Shaw. Appearing before a nationwide audience on the December 31, 1968 episode of The Tonight Show, Garrison held up a photo of the three and suggested they were involved in the assassination. Later in 1974, assassination researchers Alan J. Weberman and Michael Canfield compared photographs of the men to people they believed to be suspects involved in a conspiracy, and said that two of the men were Watergate burglars E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis. Comedian and civil rights activist Dick Gregory helped bring national media attention to the allegations against Hunt and Sturgis in 1975 after obtaining the comparison photographs from Weberman and Canfield. Immediately after obtaining the photographs, Gregory held a press conference that received considerable coverage and his charges were reported in Rolling Stone and Newsweek. 
The Rockefeller Commission reported in 1975 that they had investigated the allegation that Hunt and Sturgis, on behalf of the CIA, participated in the assassination of Kennedy. The final report of that commission stated that witnesses who testified that the derelicts bore a resemblance to Hunt or Sturgis were not shown to have any qualification in photo identification beyond that possessed by an average layman. The report also stated that FBI agent Lyndall L. Shanefelt, a nationally recognized expert in photo identification and photo analysis with the FBI Photographic Laboratory, had concluded from photo comparison that none of the men were Hunt or Sturgis. In 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassinations reported that forensic anthropologists had again analyzed and compared the photographs of the tramps with those of Hunt and Sturgis, as well as with photographs of Thomas Valley, Daniel Carswell, and Fred Lee Chrisman. According to the committee, only Chrisman resembled any of the trams, but determined that he was not to be in Dealey Plaza on the day of the assassination. In 1992, journalist Mary LaFontaine discovered the November 22, 1963 arrest records that the Dallas Police Department had released in 1989, which named the three men as Gus Abrams, Harold Doyle, and John Gedney. According to the arrest reports, the three men were taken off a boxcar in the railroad yards right after President Kennedy was shot, detained as investigative prisoners, described as unemployed and passing through Dallas, then released four days later. After Hunt's death, Howard St. John Hunt and David Hunt stated that their father had recorded several claims about himself and others being involved in a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. Notes and audio recordings were made. In the April 5, 2007 issue of Rolling Stone, Howard St. John Hunt detailed a number of individuals purported to be implicated by his father, including Lyndon B. Johnson, Cord Meyer, David Phillips, Frank Sturgis, David Morales, Antonio Viciana, William Harvey, and Lucien Sarti. The two sons alleged that their father cut the information from his memoirs to avoid possible perjury charges. According to Hunt's widow and other children, the two sons took advantage of Hunt's loss of lucidity by coaching and exploiting him for financial gain. The Los Angeles Times said that they examined the materials offered by the sons to support the story and found them to be inconclusive. The deathbed confession audio tape in which former CIA agent and Watery 8 conspirator E. Howard Hunt admits he was approached to be part of a CIA assassination attempt to kill JFK was aired and an astounding development that has gone completely ignored by the establishment media. St. John Hunt appeared on the nationally syndicated Coast to Coast live radio show to discuss the revelations contained in the tape. He said his father had mailed the cassette tape to him in January of 2004 and asked that it be released after his death. The tape was originally 20 minutes long, but was edited down to four and a half minutes for the Coast to Coast broadcast. Hunt names numerous individuals with both direct and indirect CIA connections as having played a role in the assassination, while describing himself as a bench warmer in the plot. St. John Hunt agreed that the use of this term indicates that Hunt was willing to play a larger role in the murder conspiracy had he been required. Hunt alleges on the tape that then-Vice President Lyndon Johnson was involved in the planning of the assassination and in the cover-up, stating that LBJ had an almost maniacal urge to become president. He regarded JFK as an obstacle to achieving that. Asked if his father followed the conspiracy theories into the Kennedy assassination, St. John said the elder Hunt did follow the work of A.J. Weberman, 
a New York freelance writer who in the early 70s first accused Hunt of being one of the three bums who were arrested in the Dealey Plaza. The so-called bums were interrogated and later released by authorities shortly after the assassination. Weberman, one of the founders of the Youth International Party, the Vippies, published photographs of the tramps and found that two of them bore striking similarities to Hunt and Frank Sturgis, also named by Hunt. As for his opinion to whether his father was indeed one of the Dealey Plaza tramps, St. John, in a stunning revelation, said one of the tramps indeed looked much like his father did in 1963. CIA operative Frank Sturgis has a striking resemblance to one of them as well. Other researchers believe the Hunt Tramp to really be Chauncey Holt, who apparently later confessed to the fact. Charles Harrelson was allegedly identified as the third tramp. St. John Hunt said that shortly before his death, his father had felt deeply conflicted and deeply remorseful that he didn't blow the whistle on the plot at the time and prevent the assassination, but that everyone in the government hated Kennedy and wanted him gone in one way or another. Kennedy's promise to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter the remnants to the wind was being carried out, and this infuriated almost everyone at the agency. Hunt also said that his mother's death in December of 72 plane crash in Chicago was suspicious and that there was evidence of a White House cover-up surrounding the circumstances of the alleged accident. Investigators discovered $10,000 in her luggage, and Hunt alleged that his mother traveled around the country using Nixon campaign money to pay off the families of the Watergate burglars to keep them quiet about the involvement of the Nixon White House in the Watergate break-in and cover-up. Hunt cited numerous coincidences surrounding the aftermath of the crash, including Nixon's appointment of his henchman, Eagle Crow, to the National Transportation Safety Board, which investigates plane crashes the very day after the incident. Eyewitnesses reported that the plane exploded above treetop level before it had even hit the runway. Hunt said that his safety was guaranteed by the dissemination of the tape, that he had several copies and had mailed both others to addresses both abroad and in the U.S. Once this information is out, there's really no point in anyone trying to do me in or do me wrong. Someone may try to discredit me, but I have no skeletons in my closet, said Hunt. As previously reported, the night before the Kennedy assassination, Lyndon Johnson's met with Dallas tycoons, FBI moguls, and organized crime kingpins, emerging from the conference to tell his mistress, Madeline Duncan Brown, that those SOBs would never embarrass him again. Though Brown first went public on her 21-year relationship with Johnson in the early 80s, to this day, her shocking revelations about how he had told her the Kennedys would never embarrass me again the night before the assassination are often ignored by the media, who prefer to keep the debate focused on issues which can't definitively be proven either way, or at least can be spun and whitewashed. George Herbert Walker Bush was also pictured at the scene of the crime in Dealey Plaza. In addition, Bart McClellan, father of former White House Press Secretary Scott McClellan and a partner in the Austin law firm that represented Johnson, wrote in his 2003 book that LBJ was a key player in the organization of the assassination and its cover-up. McClellan's revelations were the subject of a subsequent History Channel documentary called The Guilty Men. The biggest conspiracy and cover-up of the 20th century? What truth do you believe? It is out there. Somewhere. For now, I'd say this case is open. So the final word on musings of a cigarette-smoking man? 
the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What's out there for musings of a cigarette smoking man? First up is the AV Club's take on this episode. For nearly four seasons now, the X-Files has been spreading the news that something very bad is happening. The men in power have plans, and they are willing to go to any lengths to ensure those plans are executed, even if that means bumping off civilians, covering the truth, and cozening with alien forces. They have lied, cheated, manipulated, murdered, obfuscated, inveigled, and denied the facts. And through it all, there has been one individual, one particular bastard, standing at the edge of every curtain, whispering the words that got the trigger pulled. He is nameless. You can call him the Cancer Man, the Morley Man, the Cigarette Smoking Man, but while all of these titles are true, none of them get to the heart of the matter. That is his power. He knows who you are, but to you, he's just the smoke in the back of the room, grimacing slightly, bulldog face, a wrinkled map of a past that we can only dream of. I love this episode, though, and watching it now, I still do. I'm a sucker for off-format episodes because they project a sense of creative ingenuity and freedom, whether they're good or not, and because they expand the world of the show. We don't really learn anything immediately relevant about CSM in Musings, it's been obvious from the start that the character was a key figure in the show's cobble of shadows, and knowing that he may or may not have killed at least two very important public figures isn't really a surprise. We don't learn anything more about the colonization project, about CSM's role in it, or about what plans he has for Mulder, or if he really is Mulder's father. All we really learn is that he's been pulling the strings for a long time, and that despite being arguably the most powerful man in the country, he can't get a story published. That's enough, though. One thing I didn't realize when I first watched this, or else I forgot about it, is that none of this is canon. The episode starts with CSM setting up some eavesdropping gear in an abandoned building. We quickly learn that Mulder, Scully, and the lone gunman are across the street, and that Frohickey has a story to tell about Cancer Man. Most of the episode is a visualization of Frohiki's narrative, apart from a handful of scenes set in the present to remind us that CSM is listening, and that he has a sniper rifle in case he doesn't like what he hears. At the end of the episode, Frohiki admits, in a line that's fairly easy to miss considering its importance, that everything he's just said came from stories in a magazine he subscribes to. This is both a joke about Frohiki subscribing to a porno mag, when CSM finally gets his work in print, the only place that will accept it is Ramona Clef, an especially sleazy Hustler-style mag that, to add insult to stick injury, changes the end of his work, as well as a nod to fans to let us know that none of what we've seen is meant to be taken verbatim. And as for the stories, that's the best part. A man who spent his life creating history can't get work writing fiction. He's like a movie critic with a trunk full of rejected screenplays. Raoul Bloodworth and his ridiculous tales are CSM's attempts to achieve the control he can't ever have in his real life, 
to express himself, to be human in a way that his work will never allow him. Yes, this doesn't always fit smoothly into the rest of the show's mythology, but Frohiki's comment pretty much takes that concern off the table. Yes, maybe using two of the most infamous assassinations in recent history was a little obvious. Yet isn't the iconic nature of JFK and MLK's deaths a part of the point here? And yes, removing the helmet of the X-Files' Darth Vader to reveal the insecure Anakin underneath is arguably undercutting his impact in later episodes. It works, though. By this point in a show's run, either you give your villains a little breathing room, or else you risk them becoming stale caricatures. Musings is great because it transforms CSM from a living ghost into the walking dead. Still horrifying, still dangerous, but pitiable just the same. Grade A. As far as my two cents, I've always enjoyed this episode for its many nuances and layers of backstory. Though that backstory's total sum of truth is still uncertain, and for the fact that it lends some semblance of humanity to the Darth Vader of the X-Files. And I have to say, for this reviewer's post, I just love the ending imagery of a living ghost transforming into the walking dead. It's just about perfect. Up next, we have Musings of an X-Files take on Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man. Only fitting, because apparently, correct me if I'm wrong, this blog seems to take its title from this episode. Anyway, the review goes, Misters Morgan and Wong are back in a slightly different format this time. Rather than co-writing, Morgan authors the script while Wong si sits in the director's chair. In fact, for his directing debut, Wong would go on to win the Emmy for Best Direction. That's no mean feat. As they would in all four of their offerings this season, Morgan and Wong try their best to think outside the frame of a typical X-Files episode, in this case changing up both form and content. Besides giving us an almost Shakespearean play quite clearly delineated into four acts, there's a fluctuating tone to the tale so that we're never quite sure from one act to the next whether we're watching a history or a parody. If this is CSM's view of himself, Frohickey's view, or the view put forth by the seedy magazine Frohickey nabbed the story from. Even more significantly, this is the first episode where David Duchovny doesn't make an on-screen appearance. He's essentially limited to a book-ending set of voiceovers. Gillian Anderson narrowly misses this technically by appearing in a single scene in a flashback. At first watch, I remember missing Mulder and Scully. Over a decade later, I appreciate getting a more in-depth look at such a fabulous character. I love that they work in that flashback in the pilot, where CSM was a more enigmatic, if ominous, presence rather than the Darth Vader that he's become. This way we can consider who he was and who he's come to be. He's no longer an idealist, he's not even a realist, he's just a middle-aged man stuck in a shallow life whose memories of youthful dreams grow duller with every year. I remember at the age of 14 how my best friend and I found that monologue hilarious. In fact, I had it memorized and tacked up on my wall. That's 14 for you. Always drawn to the innocent and uplifting. Now it's a bit tedious, and dare I say it, it tries too hard. It's amazing how our tastes change. The truth is, whatever the pile of murders on his conscience, the audience will never seriously believe that he'll kill either Mulder or Scully. We'd have no show if he did. It's enough to show that he's willing. Suddenly turning things deadly serious by killing Frohickey would have lent credence to the whole tale, which would have made some obvious issues of canon more of an issue. Besides, Morgan and Wong created the lone gunmen. Why so eager to kill one of them off? 
As an aside, it's interesting how in television you can create something only to find that it's no longer yours. Not only do the characters take off on their own based on an audience's response and interpretation of them, but production companies and film studios end up having more of a say in their future than you do. The best thing about this episode is that it's clever in both form and content. Is it great? I can't quite call it that because I still get bored at moments, but I appreciate what Morgan and Wong are trying to do. Once again, they're pushing the boundaries of the show. In that regard, it's not as successful as Home, but it's surely not as polarizing as The Field Where I Died. At times the story is a little bogged down by the nitty-gritty of history. Because of this, it moves slowly, and there's nothing paranormal to speak of save for the fleeting view of a, dialing, a dying alien. But looking back on the history of the show, it's nice to have this change of pace, if only to prove that the X-Files could do it. Grade, B+. What do I think? This review has some good insight about how characters can evolve, and their fates are no longer completely determined by their creators. I also think this post makes some good points about how it's unclear at times if we the audience are seeing parody or history. Yet it's mostly successful at switching up the pace of the show for an episode, leaving us with, at the very least, some possible CSM backstory of still questionable veracity. As always, be sure to check out our show notes page at xfilestruth.com for links to both of these reviews in their entirety. My final word on musings of a cigarette smoking man? I could kill you whenever I pleased. But not today. Character profiles. But these aren't humans, Profiles in character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile Melvin Frohickey. One third of the lone gunman as portrayed by Tom Braidwood. The lone gunmen are a trio of fictional characters. Richard Ringo Langley, Melvin Frohickey, and John Fitzgerald Byers, who appeared in recurring roles on The X-Files and who starred in the short-lived spin-off The Lone Gunman. Their name was derived from the lone gunman theory of the John F. Kennedy assassination. Described as counterculture patriots, they are ardent conspiracy theorists, government watchdogs, and computer hackers who frequently assist Central X-Files characters Mulder and Scully, though they sometimes have their own adventures. The Lone Gunman author a news publication called The Lone Gunman, once referred to as the Magic Bullet Newsletter, a pejorative reference to the single bullet theory and, like the group's name, a reference to the Kennedy assassination, to which Mulder loyally subscribed. None of them have day jobs. They rely on financial backers who believe in their cause and the revenue generated by the subscriptions to their paper. They shared a loft apartment where they also work and use a 1974 to 1979 VW transporter to commute. In 1962, Frohickey and his father once rode in the legendary water-powered car of Stan Miser. 
1959 Studebaker Lark had been converted by Miser to run on H2O. Frohickey distinctly remembers Miser pouring his glass of water right into the carburetor. Engine ran smooth as silk, and they ride in that water-powered car seems to have been one of the fondest memories of Frohickey's life. While at school, Frohickey was able to hold his own, even against members of his high school football team. He also admired and wanted to grow up and emulate publisher Hugh Hefner. Frohickey was a former 1960s radical and the oldest of the three. Though a skilled computer hacker, Frohickey was primarily the photography specialist for the newsletter. Frohickey had a lascivious attitude toward women. Frohickey's attraction to Scully, however, was less hormonal than it appeared to be at first. However, he had more a purely romantic attitude towards her. When she was gravely ill in the episode One Breath, Frohickey appeared at the hospital in a tailored suit carrying a bouquet. His unique sense of fashion made him stand out. Leather jackets, black vests, combat boots, fingerless gloves, etc. Frohickey considered himself the action man of the trio, and would often be seen doing very intense stunts, many rigged to look more impressive than they really were. Despite his childish scraps with Langley and others, Frohickey's age and experience gave him a kind of quiet wisdom that occasionally surfaced when he consoled his friends about the sorry nature of their lives. Prior to his time with Byers and Langley, Frohickey lived in Miami, where he was a well-known tango dancer known as El Lobo, or The Wolf, and won at least one trophy with his partner, something of which even Langley and Byers were unaware. At some point, he left for reasons unknown, and did not return until 2001 when the gunmen were trying to stop smugglers from giving blueprints for a missile invisible to radar. While in Miami with the gunman, he tried to convince him to leave at every opportunity, causing them to be suspicious. When Byers, Langley, and Jimmy attempted to enter a tango competition, Frohickey said that he would wait outside and watch the van. Eventually, when no other choice was left, Frohickey met with his former partner in order to infiltrate the tango competition in which the data will be exchanged. Obviously hurt from his previous departure, his partner obviously still remembers their dancing days with some fondness, and she still keeps a photo of them holding a giant trophy. Despite tearing up this photo upon his return, she still agrees to enter the competition, and El Lobo dances one more time. In 1989, John Byers had met a woman named Holly in an electronics expo. Holly claims that her ex-boyfriend, who happened to be Mulder, is stalking her and has kidnapped her daughter. She gives Byers an internet address which is supposed to locate her daughter. The file's encrypted, so Byer enlists the aid of computer hacker-slash-cable salesman Melvin Frohickey. Frohickey decrypts the file, but when they confront Mulder, they discover he's an FBI agent who had not yet been assigned to the X-Files. Suspicious, Byers and Frohickey get Richard Langley to hack into the FBI network. Later, the guys are visited by Mulder, who says that he has weird ideas in his head that he can't seem to shake. Tom Braidwood was born on September 27, 1948 in British Columbia, Canada. He's an assistant director and actor known for the X-Files. Though it is often said that he was perfect for the role of Frohickey, and later the lone gunman, his being cast in it was completely accidental. The producers had already seen several actors for the part, but found casting it difficult. They were discussing the matter outside of a bathroom when Braidwood, who was already working as first assistant director on the X-Files, emerged and they realized he was the right person for the role. Dance all day love Dance all day 
Surrounded by the rest And in a mouth of an amethyst And in a righteous sapphire blue Have you checked your email? I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Angela. Hi everyone. Up first, I got an email from Agent Barry. I won't deny I'm really, really concerned Chris Carter's heart just isn't in it for the reboot and that this feeling might pervade the production, despite it being his project since day one, the criticism he's received in the past and so on. I really hope I'm wrong. I do hope some tidbits leak out now in the next few weeks, just a few behind-the-scenes pics. I'd be happy with that. Hopefully people know better than to break into cars and steal call sheets, a la I want to believe. Yeah, this upcoming revival for next January, as of this recording, is pretty much everything that's on any X-Files minds, including mine. Can't blame us. I understand, given the, the disappointment of I want to believe. I know from so many files I've talked to, it's pretty much a consensus. It was a pretty big disappointment. Even with all the excitement felt about these six new episodes, I'm still at least trying to remember the difference between expectation and hope. As more comes out, especially about the new Mythos episodes that will be included, still hoping for the best. And speaking of some info being leaked out about the X-Files revival... Our friend Knifeink sent me this link via Twitter. It's posted on TVLine.com. The X-Files revival on Fox. Are we getting a sequel to the season 4 classic, Home? I'm just going to read a little bit of it. They say you can't go home again. Well, they clearly haven't met Mulder and Scully. There are some early indicators that the second episode of Fox's limited series, The X-Files Revival, may be a sequel of sorts to the seminal, celebrated season 4 outing, Home. For starters, Episode 2 of the six-episode continuation is titled Home Again. What's more, the writer-director of the episode is Glenn Morgan, who just so happened to pen the original Home, with fellow X-Files scribe James Wong. As far as what I think, how much more scarily awesome could that get? Anyway, I've added a link to that TV Line article on our show notes page, too, in case you'd like to check it out. And as always, if you'd like to jump in about the X-Files revival, or anything else X-Files for that matter. You can email us at xfilestruth at live.com, drop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash xfilestruthpodcast, or tweet us at xfiles underscore truth. Until next time, I'm just going to say what our Twitter icon says. I can't keep calm. The X-Files is coming back. Time on X Files Truth. 
when the X-Files team intercepts a diplomatic pouch containing a meteor fragment of extraterrestrial origin which crashed to Earth in Russia in 1908, Mulder becomes involved with two deadly life forms, one alien, the other his old nemesis, Alex Krychek. That closes the file for Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man. That was an excellent episode, and we're running into a bunch of good episodes now when the X-Files are really kind of hitting their stride fully, I think. Uh, we have coming up a nice two-parter next month. The first Sunday of the month, we will do Tunguska. I hope you all had a happy 4th of July weekend, and we will see you next month. Oh, and check our website for a filter video with CSM playing himself in it. Did you like that one, puppies? I made this. 20th century box. August 20th, 1940, Mexico City. Stalinist agent assassinated Leon Trotsky with an ice pick. At that same moment, a thousand miles north in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, he appears. The father was an ardent communist activist. During the Nazi-Soviet pact, he kept the NKVD informed on American plans to enter World War II. He was executed under the Espionage Act of 1917, before his Morgan walk. The mother, a cigarette smoker, died of lung cancer before her son uttered his first word. With no surviving family, he became a ward of the state, sent to various orphanages in the Midwest. Didn't make friends. Spent all his time reading, alone. And then, he appears to have vanished until a year and a half after the Bay of Pigs. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.